I'm going to start in Mark chapter 11, verse 22 this evening. Jesus speaking what I believe are the most uh, concise words on the subject of faith, the most instructive, in my opinion, on uh, the operation of faith and how faith works and so forth. The, uh, the back story is that Jesus has, the day before Jesus cursed a fig tree that uh, had leaves on it but no fruit, no man eat fruit of the hereafter forever. And then the next morning they came back by that same place and the disciples recognized that the, the fig tree has dried up from the roots. And um, Peter calls it to his attention and Jesus responds in verse 22 saying unto them, have faith in God. That's translated uh, a number of different ways in different translations. One translation says, have the faith of God. One translation, a paraphrase, goes from that to have the the God kind of faith. Well, the faith of God would be the God kind, wouldn't it? So he says, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt, doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now we take that verse of scripture and we paraphrase it and we say, uh, we identify a principle, a principle that's true from the word, that you can have what you say. But notice Jesus conditioned this receiving. He conditioned the results. He said the person that will have what they say is the person that does not doubt in their heart. And believes that the words that he says shall come to pass. Those are the two conditions for the principle of having what you say. And shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. Then he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now James chapter 3 goes into some detail. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And the book of James was the earliest of the New Testament letters that we have a record of. The um, Bible scholars all pretty much agree that, uh, that James was written before Paul wrote his letters and before Peter wrote his as well, way before John wrote his, some 60 years before John wrote his. And James is talking from the position of a pastor, and I think the, I think the reason that the book of James is um, so unique and carries such different information and comes about the things of God from a different perspective than any of the others it's because James is dealing with people that he lives with day after day after day. Not so much was the case for Peter and not so much was the case for Paul. But James is dealing with people and preaching to people that he's living with. He's there with them. He's pastoring. He knows their lives. And he knows the difference between just making a confession and living it out in your life. And so James talks a lot about works. Now, he's not talking about works in the sense of good works, earning a place with God and trying to get in in, uh, God's graces by doing good things. But the works that he talks about are corresponding actions. It's one thing he says to have faith. It's another thing to show that you have faith by the way that you live. And I think we can all see the value in that. But one of the things that James undertakes in his letter to the church is the power of the tongue. Why don't you turn with me over to James chapter 3. I was just going to refer to some things, but I think we might do a disservice if we just fail to look at it for what it says beginning in verse 1 James chapter 3 my brethren be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation for in many things we offend all if any man offend not in word the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body now notice what James says 
James says if you can control your tongue, you can control your body. I want to let that sink in. James said if you control your tongue, then you can control your body. Now what's Jesus talking about when he says, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. He's talking about the operation of your tongue. He's talking about words. Speaking the right words. Resist the temptation to speak the wrong words. James also goes on to say, uses some examples. He said, behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. And what about a bit in a horse's mouth controls his body? Pressure on his tongue. Pressure. Rightly applied to the words that you speak to determine which words you will speak can make the difference in healing and sickness. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor or the captain listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. No matter how big a fire, they all start with the same spark. And he's using that spark to illustrate the operation of the tongue. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and is set on fire and sets on fire the course of nature and is set in on fire of hell. So James talks about the tongue And the the importance of controlling the tongue. He says if you don't control your tongue. Then it's going to speak sinfully. Folks if there's one thing that we need to understand. That changed with the, the fall of man. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden of Eden. It's this. Man lost control of his tongue. This description of the tongue. Is certainly not the way God made it to be. It's certainly not the way that it was. In the garden of Eden before the fall. There would be, it would be impossible for Adam, before sin came onto the scene, to have a tongue that meets this description. Because everything Adam said was from his heart, his spirit, where the life of God dwelt. Therefore, the origin of everything that Adam spoke before the fall was from his spirit and a righteous spirit. So it would be impossible for Adam's tongue to fit this description before the fall. It would be impossible for anybody's tongue to fit that description before the fall. But the fall caused man to lose control of his tongue. Not in the respect that he can't control it, but in the respect that the default position for the tongue is the work of the devil. So Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. When he talks about not doubting in his heart. I'll remind you of what Paul wrote to the church in the book of Hebrews. About the Israelites. They've come to the edge of the promised land. You remember the story in Numbers 13 and 14. They've come to the edge of the promised land. They've sent the the, the 12 spies into the promised land. To come back and tell everybody what, uh, what they saw and what they found. Two of them come back with a good report. Joshua and Caleb said... Let's go take what God says is ours. The other ten, however, 
disagree with Caleb and Joshua's position and report. They said the land is good, just like God said. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. We've never seen a land this good in all of our lives. But we can't do it. Now, Paul, in recounting that in Hebrews chapter 4, Paul identifies and says, Let there not be an evil heart of unbelief in you like was in them. Now, what was the evil of their heart? Their declaration, the words of their mouths that said, We can't take what God said is ours. Now, folks, you know as well as I do, whether you're young or old, that the number one thing that the devil tries to bug us with and talk to us about is our inability to have what the Bible says is ours. And it's that way for everybody. The devil is always there to say, well, maybe somebody else did, but you can't. That's his default position. And he does everything he can to bring thoughts to us and circumstances up to us to influence our tongue. Everything that the devil does is to get you to yield your tongue to his ideas. He wants to get you to speak his words. And his words are always, I can't. I'm unable. God's word's not true. So when Paul says to the church, writing to the church, when Paul says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief as there was in our forefathers, talking about the Israelites, when they refused to accept the the promise of God to be theirs as far as taking the promised land was concerned. We see the devil again trying to influence their destiny, control their destiny by influencing their tongue. And the Bible calls that evil. The evilest thing there is. I know we try to think of things sometimes and we think, well, what's worse? Murder or adultery? What's worse? Lying or cheating? We may have standards or measures on what's more evil than the other, what one thing is more evil than another thing. But the Bible says that God considers evil to be speaking words that contradict his word. That's what God says is evil. And that's what the Bible warns us against. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, Mark eleven twenty four goes on to say, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Believe that you receive them and you shall have them. When Jesus said that the qualification for having what you say is not doubting in your heart, but believing that what you say shall come to pass, he's giving us the recipe for success. Peter says it this way, talking about the operation of the tongue, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. He said, for he that would love, good li- love life and seek good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Peter tells us that the key to good days and long life is the operation of the tongue. The operation of the tongue. Now, I was around Brother Hagin for a long time, and not, long, not as long as I'd like to have been. But one of the things that, um, one of the benefits, one of the great benefits of my association with Brother Hagin was this. The time that I was with him over the years that I was there in services every day, many times, most of those times, twice a day, hearing him tell his story about how he was healed from a deformed heart and blood disease and several other things that the doctors didn't know what to call. 
I heard the whole story. Over a period of several years, I heard the whole story. Now, Brother Hagin never, in my recollection, never sat down with anybody and told the whole story start to finish. He would always draw on parts of the story that were illustrations to whatever he was preaching or teaching in that particular service. But over a period of years, I wound up hearing the whole story. Well, you may have heard the, the, the main part of the story where he came to the place where he, he understood, where the Lord revealed to him, the Holy Ghost revealed to him, that he had to believe that he received his healing before he could see any change. That was a revelation to him. Nobody was teaching it. He didn't have any books that would teach that or tell him that or anything like that. So when the Lord showed him Mark eleven twenty four and opened his eyes to the fact that he had to believe that he received when he prayed, believe that he received his healing when he prayed, not when he saw a change in his body, then that, that altered everything for him. Within a matter of just a few minutes, he announced that he believed that he received his healing from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He felt the power of God hit him from the top of his head. By the time it got to the soles of his feet, he was standing strong. Having overcome the paralysis just a few minutes before that kept him from being able to move anything. Well, usually that's where everybody finishes the story. They think that's where the story ends. And in one sense, it certainly did. That was where he was, had received the, the result of his prayer of faith. And his faith had manifested the healing in his body. But there was a period of time, about a year and a half after that, that Brother Hagin struggled with some of the symptoms trying to come back on his body. And there were times where he was uh, affected to such a degree that he couldn't hardly go on. But he knew that stopping was an admission of defeat. So he's got a dilemma. He feels like going back to bed and laying down and resting. But he knows he's got to keep going because to give up would be a sign of unbelief and he would be in danger of losing the whole thing. And so he went to prayer about it because he couldn't figure out what was going wrong. He was trying to do the same thing that he did before and manifest the power of God in his life. But he was having some alarming symptoms. He was still having circulatory problems because of the deformed heart and the conditions, uh, the blood disease that he had. And so he went to prayer and he said, Lord, I, I, if you don't show me what's going on, I can't make this. I'm going to die just like they said that I would, not when they said that I would. And everybody's going to say, well, we thought he was healed, but I guess he wasn't. Which anybody with half a brain should know that if you're paralyzed and then all of a sudden you start walking, something's changed. So he earnestly began to seek the Lord about it. And the Lord said this to him. He said, you're not calling things that be not as though they were. And he showed him brought to his remembrance and showed him that after he was healed, after he received healing, the power of God came and lifted him up. He was standing strong and standing straight in his bedroom because of the power of God. From that point forward, people would ask him, how are you feeling? And he'd talk to him about how he felt. And this went on for a period of a couple of months. And the Lord reminded him that when he first started, after he received his healing, people would ask him and he would say, I'm well. He wouldn't discuss his symptoms with anybody. But the more that his symptoms started taking hold of him, the more he started talking to people about them. And the Lord told him just point blank. He said, if you don't change that, 
You're going to lose everything you had, and the devil's going to win. So from that point forward, Brother Hagin, whenever anybody would ask him, how are you feeling? Sometimes he didn't look too well, and so they, you know, they said, can we do something for you? You look like you're about to pass out. But he would always respond and always answer, I'm well, thank you. Well, he certainly didn't feel well. And, folks, this is the place where most people, in my experience at least, my experience pastoring the church for 30-something years, as well as the time that I was with Brother Hagin, that's the, peop- the place where most people don't get it. That's the place where I would have to estimate most people stumble. They don't understand that calling things that be not as though they were, or as Jesus said, speaking to the mountain, they don't realize the importance of that. Now, a lot of times what we'll do, and this is what Brother Hagin was doing, is we'll thank God for our healing. We'll say, thank you, Father, that I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. Brother Hagin said, I did that for months, all the while symptoms were trying to come back on me. Thank you, Father, that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. There's a big difference between thanking God for what we have, according to the word, which is good and which is right. It's part of what Abraham did as, as being strong in faith. He gave glory to God before he had the answer. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do, but it cannot take the place of speaking to your body. Thanking God for what belongs to you does not take the place of speaking to the mountain. Notice Jesus did not say, Verily I say unto you, whoever tells God about the mountain and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. I think a lot of people get in that same routine. We're talking to God consistently about things. And so we talk to him about what belongs to us when what the Bible says is we've been given authority over our own bodies. God doesn't have authority over your body. God does not determine what happens to your flesh. He does not determine whether you receive your healing or not. You do. Now, I want, you to, I want to prove this to you. I want you to turn with, with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is a very interesting story of a man that found out some things about God's plan to heal. We'll start in verse uh, 14, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Jesus has just come back from the mountain of transfiguration where the glory of God was upon him. And Peter and James and John were with him. And it says, And when he came back to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. Now, that's never a good thing. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question you with them? What are you talking to them about? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And whithersoever he taketh him, he tears him. And he foams and gnashes with his teeth and pines away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. Please notice that phrase. They could not. Now, how would the father know they couldn't unless they had tried and failed? There are other translations that say, and the disciples tried, but couldn't. That's the only way he'd know, isn't it? The only way he would know that they couldn't is if they had tried, made an attempt, 
and couldn't do it. And if you go back just a little bit before this time, chronologically in Jesus' ministry, you'll find out that Jesus has given them power to heal all disease and to cast out devils. But in this case, they couldn't do it. And so the father continues talking to Jesus, telling him the story. I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Then he, meaning Jesus, answered him, meaning the father, and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Who did he call faithless? He's talking to the father. Now, I don't think that it's exclusive to the father because Jesus later on answers the disciples privately when they said, why couldn't we do it? And he said, because of your unbelief. But the father is certainly included in the faithless generation or the the group that he calls a faithless generation. Faithless means without faith, right? Now, we know what faith does. Jesus just explained to us in Mark chapter 11 that we saw Jesus said the faith of God or the God kind of faith is to speak to the mountain, not doubt in your heart, believe that what you say will come to pass and you'll have what you say. Then when it comes to faith in prayer, he says, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. Now, if you look at Mark 11 and 23 and 24, you'll find that there is an absolute answer, absolute result for following the conditions and the principles that he gives us about faith. There's no room for failure. And there will never be a failure if we follow the principles that Jesus outlined when it comes to faith. Clearly, that's not what happened here. So Jesus identifies something right away. He identifies that the only thing, I think, well, you judge this for yourself. I believe it's a fair statement to say the only thing that would stop the power that Jesus has delegated to his disciples is unbelief. So now Jesus has identified unbelief. Well, if he's identified unbelief as the problem, then he knows how to fix it, doesn't he? The problem most people have is they don't know where the problem is, so they don't know where to start trying to fix it. So Jesus says, O faithless generation, speaking to the Father, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, And when he, the little boy, saw Jesus, straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father said, since he was a little boy. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. This father is asking for Jesus' help. If you can do anything to help us, have compassion, have mercy on us and help us. Now, notice Jesus' response. King James translation doesn't bring it out very well, but if you study the language any, you'll find out that Jesus, what they put in one sentence in the King James translation is really two different thoughts. The first is a sarcastic response. If I can't. Jesus responds by saying, if I can. Now think about that. Why in the world would the father have brought his son to Jesus unless he believed Jesus could help him? 
But now he's gotten to the place, maybe through the failure of the, uh, on the disciples' part. Now he's come to the place where he doesn't even know if God can help him. But he says, if you can, have compassion on us and help us. Now here's the thing I want you to see as well. How does Jesus respond when the man calls out for mercy? See, most of us would like our cries for mercy to be God coming over and wrapping us up in his arms and saying, okay, you just rest, I'll take care of this. But Jesus, who is the example of God on the earth, responds and says, if I can, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, the response to the, the request for mercy to bring deliverance to the Son is met with the requirement to believe. You want the mercy of God? You're going to have to operate in faith. The mercy of God is not an acquiescence to a lack of faith or the improper use of faith so that God just takes things into his own hands. Jesus, expressing the will and the plan and the purpose of God, says all things are possible to him that believes. So notice what happens as a result. The father cries out and says with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine own belief. A couple of things I want you to see about this. First of all, what the father said was not some great statement of faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's about as wishy-washy as you get when it comes to faith. But the important thing is this. Well, two important points. One is the failure on the part of the disciples to bring deliverance to the child or the boy. He's had this thing since he was a child, so I guess he's older than what we consider a youngster. The failure on the part of the disciples to bring deliverance to this father's son is not reflective of God's will when it comes to healing and deliverance. Let me say it a different way, make sure I make the point. Their failure to bring deliverance to the son of this man did not change God's will for him to be healed. Folks, that's hugely important. Because you know as well as I do that everybody's got an excuse or something that they can go back to and wonder about whether or not it's God's will to heal everybody because we all know some dear sister, saint, whoever. They got sick and died. And if God wouldn't heal somebody as holy as they were, then how can we be sure that healing is for everybody? If this story in the Bible is a principle for us to learn anything, which if it's not, why would it be there? But if it's a principle for us to learn anything, it is to show us that faith failures on anybody's part doesn't change what God's will was, is, and ever will be. That's true in the area of healing and every other area there is. So the disciples' unbelief, the disciples' failure that Jesus later identifies as unbelief didn't change God's will for this boy to be healed. Not in the least. Well, if that doesn't change God's will then why should situations that you and I know of or things that we've heard of cause us to believe God's will has changed for healing for us or anybody else? 
And of course, the answer is it shouldn't. Now, here's the second thing. Jesus, in requiring faith, never said that he would not help our faith, no matter how, I hate to use the word small because we think of size, however weak our faith might be. See, strong faith is identified in the scripture, in, uh, in Abraham's case at least. Strong faith is identified because Abraham gave glory to God before he saw the answer. And he was fully persuaded that God could do what he said he'd do. This man is not persuaded of that at all. He's come away thinking, I don't even know what belongs to us now. I thought Jesus was healing everybody, but now it didn't work for my son, so... I don't even know what's what what and what belongs to any of us anymore. But Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, he's not looking for a reason not to honor his word in our lives. He's always looking for an opportunity to make his word good. Yet faith is still required. So he tells the father, all things are possible to him that believes. And the only thing that changes in the father's situation are the words, Lord, I believe. That's it. That's the only thing that changes. The words of his mouth change to words of faith. And Jesus heals and delivers the son. Well, this is an example of what Jesus, uh, or what... uh, what Jesus was telling Brother Hagin about what his situation, what was going on in his situation. He said, you're not calling things that be not as though they were. Remember, that was one of the things that it says of Abraham, how that Abraham imitated God concerning the promise of having children when he was about 100 years old and Sarah was about 90. It said that Abraham was like unto God. He became an imitator of God. By calling things that be not as though they were. He began calling himself the name God gave him. Which was father of many nations. He's calling himself the father of many nations before he ever has a child. He's speaking to his body. He's not speaking to God about his body. He's speaking to his body. When this father changes his words to words of faith. As I said I wouldn't consider this to be great faith. But it's still faith. We could say that this might be considered by God to be mustard seed faith. But even that works. Even that works. And the reason that it does is because faith is expressed from our spirits through our words. It's followed up with actions in most cases, many cases at least. But it's always identified by the words that we speak. So when Brother Hagin was told by the Lord that you're not calling things that be not as though they were, he started getting worse and worse and worse until he saw what the problem was. And from that point forward, he said that he began to answer anybody and everybody that asked him a question about his condition, how he felt, or anything related to that. He would also always respond, I'm well, thank you. My body is well. Nothing can take the place of you speaking to your own body. You're the one that has authority over your body, not God. As much as you present your body a living sacrifice, it's still under your control. 
Your body is under your authority. Your words control your body. So Jesus said, and this is why he said it, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, whosoever shall speak to the problem, if the problem is sickness in your body, then speaking to your body is what he means. Your body becomes your mountain. Whosoever shall speak to the mountain and say, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, never utter words contrary to the words of faith that were spoken, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Did you notice, and uh, we didn't look at the story, but I trust that you know it well enough to be familiar with it. Did you notice that Jesus never talked to God about the tree? Jesus didn't involve God in one aspect, not even one small aspect of talking to the tree. He didn't need to. Jesus didn't need to come to the tree and say, Father, you need to do something about this because I came to the tree hungry and it didn't provide for me. So, Father, do something about this tree. I think you ought to kill it. It's not the way it worked. Jesus spoke to the problem. He spoke to the tree. And he expects every one of us to do the same thing. Whosoever shall say to this mountain. You need to start speaking to your body. No matter how many times a day you thank God for your healing, you need to speak to your body. Body, be healed in Jesus' name. I call my body well in the name of Jesus. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. Therefore, I am healed from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. It doesn't matter to me how you say it, but you need to say it. Whatever words best express the situation that you're in, nothing, let me underline that again, nothing takes the place of you speaking to your own body. That's what Jesus said brings results. Speaking to your body and never saying anything to the contrary. But believing that the words that you speak shall come to pass. The reason that we speak to our body is because we believe that our words will come to pass. That's the whole reason for speaking to your body. That's the whole reason for talking to your body that's not cooperating or trying not to cooperate. You speak to your body to change things. And Jesus said it works every time. Amen. Thank God for the word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for explaining to us in simple terms, simple enough for all of us to get it, the glorious truths that belong to us because we're in you. We thank you that faith is a proposition that works every time we follow the instructions. So we say to our bodies, be healed. We say to our bodies, you are well in the name of Jesus. We say to our bodies that sickness must flee. Every trace of every symptom of every sickness must leave our bodies in the precious and holy name of Jesus. We exercise authority over you, body, and we command sickness to go. We refuse to allow sickness to remain in our flesh because of the price that Jesus paid for us to be free. Bodies, be healed in Jesus' name. We thank you for the privilege that we have to operate like you do, Father. Simple principles of faith that bring results every time. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the author and the finisher of our faith. 
And so we thank you for the results. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for providing for us. We thank you for the strength that your word, the application of your word brings into our lives. We are strong in you, Lord, and in the power of your might. And we thank you for raising us up in Jesus' precious name. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great week.